the radical left, the Marxists, the anarchists, the agitators, the looters, and people who, in many instances, have absolutely no clue what they are doing. Welcome to What Radicalized You, a podcast of stories and experiences that have shaped people's ideas about our world and the way society should function. What's up, y'all? My name is Salifu Sisei-Mac, and I am an editor at Hood Communist. I'm also a member of the Black Alliance for Peace, um, the Low Country Action Committee, and the Sabukwe work-study circle of the All-African People's Revolutionary Party. I sat down to really think about this because I feel like whenever I hear people ask that question, I always feel like, can you ever honestly answer the question of what radicalized you? Because I feel like my experience has been so many different little points of radicalization to like get me to like the current moment, you know? And I was thinking about it, I was like, I mean, I could say a lot of things. Like I probably could start sometime in kindergarten and like talk about Miss Sanders, who is this like older black woman that was my kindergarten teacher. And she used to like play drums and like she taught us dances and chants that we was doing like in kindergarten. Like there was like no crazy politic behind it or anything. It was just something that she introduced us to and like we like she'd come in the class and she like get on the drum and I think I remember the beat it would be like uh and she would like do that and she would have us chant like Yahoo didn't they and like dancing like this class of like little kindergarten kids that was just like so hyped to come to class every day and like do this dance and do this chant like this class full of black kids like I always think about that memory fondly i could probably talk about coming from like you know uh, underdeveloped and like underperforming town like the high school that i went to in south carolina we was in like the second worst performing school district and just like that feeling of being in a place where you know you deserve better and you know people can do better by you but but nobody's doing it I feel like I could probably talk about going to like a racist ass PWI and kind of getting my first exposure to whiteness and like what a mess that was. And after I graduated from college, I was like, well, damn, maybe I can start the story off like living in New York for the first time and like being broke as fuck and like literally stealing out of bodegas to eat sometimes. But I was thinking about it and I was like, bro, if I'm really gonna talk about what radicalized me, like I have to start in 2019. So that is where I'm gonna start the story. I'm starting the story in the last few months of 2019. So by 2019, I had been living in New York for about four years and I randomly matched with this guy on Tinder and we like went out, it was like cool. And I went back to his place and his place was like, he had like a whole fucking brownstone to himself. I was just so like, I don't know, I was just so mesmerized by that. Like, oh shit, like here I am, like out with this guy who's like this celebrity stylist and he has this like dope apartment 
and he'd be like all around the world and shit. And so like at the end of 2019, I made this commitment to myself. I was like all spiritual and stuff like, yeah, I'm going to manifest wealth. I'm going to manifest a brownstone. I'm going to manage. I was like, I was like all like envisioning my life. Like I wanted to live this rich nigga life just like him. And um, we dated for a few months and and that kind of fell apart. But coming straight into 2020, I had done did all my manifestations. I was hunting for a new job. I had got this new gig. I was going to be working in TV production. I was making the most money I ever made in my life. For the first time, I was going to be able to like actually live in New York. And I was just all about chasing the bag. Like for me, it was like, it was like, you know how niggas be like, money over everything. I can't see the haters. Like, fuck them. Like, I'm finna get this bread. That's what I was really on. And then 2020 hit. Like, <laughs> 2020 hit. And I remember, like, the pandemic came through and, like, everything changing. I remember that phase of, like, being stuck at home. I remember that phase of, like, not knowing what the fuck was going to happen throughout the world. And then the pandemic became like this triple pandemic. I feel like anybody who lived through 2020, if you found a way to live through that experience and have it not radicalize you, I, 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 I just don't know what to say about that. But there was so much happening at the beginning of that pandemic. But the moment in the pandemic that shifted everything for me was when one of my best friends passed away from coronavirus. It was like everything in my life just got like flipped on its head. And I remember so many conversations that we would have about like being safe, being cautious, staying in so that we didn't get other people, you know, uh, infected with coronavirus. And for Cliff to have died as somebody who was like so cautious and like so careful and like, I don't know. It still really fucks me up to think about it. But I remember when he passed away, this shift that happened in my brain that was like, he didn't just die. Like, this country killed him. He died so needlessly. And not just him, but like thousands of millions of other people. They they didn't die. Like, they, they were killed. <laughs> they were killed. These, it's like... It, I can, I'm like kind of laughing at it now, but like, I remember realizing like, holy shit, the U.S. killed my best friend. And ever since that, that shift in like consciousness of what happened, it felt like everything, the world just started to explode. I remember the protests started picking up in Atlanta after George Floyd, after Breonna Taylor, people went and took the CNN building. There were African people in Europe running up on museums, like demanding the return of artifacts. I was living in New York at the time. New York was going up every single day. And I was just like, oh shit, like something is happening. I had been through the like BLM cycle of like Trayvon Martin in the past. Like I, I had done that. I had done the sort of protest thing before and I was a little bit burnt out from it. But what happened in 2020 felt new to me and I wanted to be like in on it. And so I just remember, if I think about my life at that time, it was like this montage of like doom scrolling Twitter, of picking up new books and trying to read new things, trying to really understand what the fuck is capitalism, trying to really understand like what is imperialism, what is white supremacy, like what are these things, and get into this place where all I had was like rage, I had no hope, like all I had was rage. And then I reread 
Asada, an autobiography. Asada Shakur's autobiography. I reread it for the second time. And there's this passage from the book. As I was reading it, I picked it up to read it for the second time. And I started reading. I was like, no, I need to read this with other people. So I got together like a group of folks, a group of friends that invited their friends. And we all started reading Asada together. And there's this passage in the book that like changed my outlook of the summer. And it's while she's describing going away to community college for the first time and like finding herself in all these various circles of like revolutionaries and like how she was introduced to the movement. And she says that fall, the level of activity on campus surpassed anything that we had dreamed of. Large numbers of students became involved in the anti-war movement. It seemed that there was no time to catch up with all the things that were happening. I would be at the construction workers demonstration one day and then marching with the welfare mothers the next. We got down with everything, rent strikes, sit-ins, the takeover of the Harlem State Office building, whatever it was. If we agreed with it, we would try to give active support in some way. The more active I became, the more I liked it. It was like medicine, making me well, making me whole. I was home. For the first time, my life felt like it had some real meaning. Everywhere I turned, Black people were struggling. Puerto Ricans were struggling. It was beautiful. I love Black people. I don't care what they are doing. But when Black people are struggling, that's when they are the most beautiful to me. And like, I just remember reading that and the feeling of rage that I had about everything that was happening that summer stayed there. The rage never went away, but I was starting to feel this like idea of like hope that like maybe we were on to I don't know the beginning of like something new and I wanted to do exactly what Asada was talking about like I wanted to struggle I wanted to feel that beauty I wanted to like see that beauty so I went outside and like at first I was all by myself I was going out to these random protests that people were organizing and I remember the fear that I was feeling because I had been out in the streets in New York before but there was something about the energy of New York in summer 2020, the cops were extra menacing. Like everything was extra scary. I remember it feeling like being in a movie and I was like going out to these protests every day and every night, like by myself. And I remember being scared all the time, but like trying not to show it because I felt like this was like my duty. Like I had to be outside. I had to be doing this. This was like the only way to really get involved and like change the world. I went to a protest one day in Flatbush. It was a protest that was supposed to be honoring the lives, um, the families of slain black people in New York. It was a relatively like peaceful day. There were speakers, we marched. And I remember being there and encountering this guy had long dreadlocks. And he was like, you could tell he was like the leader of something. And he was like directing people or where to go. He's telling white people to get in the back, don't be in the front. And I was like, oh shit, this seems cool. Like I, I want to stick close to this. So I stayed close to that for the entire protest. And after the protest was over, all these people, all these black people in Flatbush, all these Caribbean people, all of these people who you could tell were like first gen immigrants from Africa, like everybody was just hanging out 
And the cops just started like pepper spraying and like antagonizing people everywhere. It was like, it was like, it was like the most insane thing I had ever seen. And as the sun continued to set, it only made the people matter. And because I was out there, I was like, well, shit, I'm staying. Like I, I didn't, I'm not just going to show up and go home. I'm going to stay whatever the night becomes, the night becomes. And I remember that night became like a nightmare. There's like a lot of footage and like a lot of commentary that goes around when NYPD is brutalizing protesters in New York in places where you find most white people, but not a lot talk, not a lot of commentary about some of the things that happened in Brooklyn last summer that I don't think a lot of people are going to ever really be able to get past. Like I remember seeing people in wheelchairs knocked out of their wheelchairs and like trampled by NYPD. There were like moments where we were in the street and they were literally fighting us like like dogs, like cops, like fighting people. I remember strategizing with other people on how to move, how to navigate being like, just like pinned through alleys and shit by the cops. Like it really was like, I, it was like really my first time realizing like this shit is like, it's like, it's like they're playing Call of Duty. It's like war for them. Like it's not, it's not, we aren't people. And this is barely real for them. Like they could take us out at any moment. I remember getting injured that night and like limping all the way home and coming back and laying in my bed and being like, this shit is really a war. And I don't know if I can like keep doing this by myself. So I got to the point where I was like, I want to keep going, but like, I need a crew. Like I need folks, I need people. And I was thinking about the guy from the protest with the dreadlocks. And I was like, I need to find the organization that did this and see if I can be a part of it. Like I need to join the organization. I need to get in the organization. So I reached out to the organization and basically was like, I'm trying to get down. They screened me, they got me on the email listserv. And from there, I was paying attention to all the things that were coming through the email every day. And one day I'm like at home working cause that like fancy job that I had got when I was like all about all my like stack bread shit, we were now working from home. And I remember seeing an email one day that was like, we need people in Flatbush right now there's a, a a renter trying to evict a house full of non non-binary folk and sex workers and we need help and i remember just like cutting my camera off zoom and like calling an uber and just like jetting to get there cuz i was like i don't know what i'm gonna do when i get there but i'm gonna pull up like this i want I, I don't know what i don't know why i'm so compelled to be here or what i'm about to do but i'm gonna go I got there, we got there when the sun was out. There was this whole commotion. Um, I got to meet all these people that were in the organization who gave me like the lowdown on what was happening, the the history of this uh, landlord and like who we were there to protect. And then nighttime came. I remember it was like, it was, it really was like a scene out of a movie. We like chased the landlord off the property, chased his wife off the property. The cops came totally useless. They said they couldn't do anything to protect the people in the house. And right there on the spot, it was me and random people who showed up to be a part of this thing, getting guidance from this organization that was like, 
we're going to have to do a sit-in on this home. We're going to have to make sure that these people in this house are protected. And I don't know how long we're going to be here to do this, but we're going to have to do it. So can y'all stay? Like, what can y'all do? And from that night, I got thrown into what became like a four or five day house sit-in. I learned to organize around the clock on how to protect your neighbor from being evicted. We had breakfast set up every morning. We had people on shifts that would come. If you couldn't be there in the morning, could you come in the afternoon? Could you stay overnight? It was this really intense learning moment for me of like submitting myself to like a group of people who had these experiences and like letting them teach me like how how to how to how to fucking protect like your neighbor, which is like not something that you just I don't know. It's not something they're going to teach you in college. It's not something that you're going to learn. It's the only the only way you can learn it is by being there. And I and I was there learning this thing. And from there, that became my that became my first experience with an organization. And that fear that I had every night of like going out and facing off with cops or being in the street, it wasn't there anymore because this was like an organization and. I feel like sometimes when you use the word organization, it gets obscured and people start thinking about something that's like corporate or like, I don't know, nonprofit or something. But this was an organization in the sense that like there was accountability for every person in the organization. They had all these systems in place that was like, oh, if you're going out to a protest, you need to like write to this group. And these people are going to be assigned to like check on you every 15 minutes until you let them know that you're home. There were people who stayed at home all day and just like listened to police scanners and gave people an update on what was going on. There were people constantly organizing like food and donation drop-offs and stuff. And I was like, whoa, this organization shit is like really powerful, like really, really powerful. And it was happening like down the street from me, you know what I mean? And so that was like a great first exposure on like what it means to work with other people, like what it means to actually build community with other people. I felt like I was living that quote from Masada Shakur, like in real time. It was beautiful to see all these people who were like politically aligned, like we're gonna protect each other this summer. Nobody's getting evicted. Every waking minute when I'm not organizing with this organization I was a part of in New York, I'm like trying to feed my brain. Like I'm picking up all these books for the first time and like learning this history of like resistance and struggle and like revolution that has existed all around the world. And I would go to sleep at night listening to Kwame Ture's speeches. And that became my first introduction to Pan-Africanism. I had been a huge like, I guess you could say follower of Kwame Ture but I was exposed to his life on the black power tip. I think that's something that happens to like with us with like a lot of our like political, I guess people who we prop up to be like leaders or figureheads, we get attached to them really kind of like in one era of their life. But by falling asleep to these YouTube videos every night, I got to go through this progression of like Kwame Ture's politics in real time. And I watched him go from these speeches about black power like clinging to this African identity and this concept called Pan-Africanism, this idea of like one united socialist Africa. And I remember soaking all that up. And I had this moment where I woke up one day, 
I don't know why it was that day because it was nothing special about the day, but I was just in the bathroom brushing my teeth. And I looked at myself in the mirror and was like, oh shit, you're an African person. And like, that sounds like a small, like self-realization. Cause like, obviously if you're black, you're like, you, you descend from Africa. Like, yeah, like we talk about it in those very like soft terms a lot in the US, I think. Like even people who call themselves African-Americans, there's always so much more emphasis on the American part of that. But I was looking, I just was looking at myself in the mirror, was like, whoa, there's no way to like deny Africa. There's no way for you to deny or distance yourself from Africa. Like you are an African person. And so is like your mom and like, so is your dad. And like, so is like your roommates and like the people who live down the street from you. Like you've never touched the grass in Africa before, but you are an, an African person. And that wasn't a, a acknowledgement on some like, I don't know, some like cosmetic, like cultural, like cosplay, like, oh, let me go get like a dashiki. It was like a moment of like clarity about political alignment. Where does my allegiance, if I understand myself as an African person, right? And I understand the history of colonialism and I understand the history of the transatlantic slave trade, where then do my allegiances lie? When we talk about revolution, when we talk about liberation, what side am I standing on? Who am I supposed to be fighting for? It was this moment of clarity that was like, holy shit, Pan-Africanism, yes. This is what I'm struggling towards. I am struggling toward the total unification of Africa and its people everywhere around the world for the reclamation of our land. Literally free the land, literally land back. Um, I think that that realization of what Pan-Africanism is and like what it has to represent was a really huge moment for me because so much of the, the social justice discourse in the United States is like how to be an anti-racist or like how to do everything except address colonialism, how to do everything except deal with the fact that like the U.S. is a settler colonial empire. And like no matter how long ago something is stolen, like you, it's stolen until you give it back to the people that it belongs to. And we just don't talk about these things. This is the first time I had this realization of this rant that I always go down, like don't get me drunk because I will really start talking about this. But you can't just like come on land that other people own, had their whole like own belief systems, had their own religions, their own ways of being, their own, their own community, their own all this shit and just be like, Actually, none of this is valid, and we're just going to build a place called America. Like, you literally can't do that. Like, the place that you build, no country, no nation started on those terms can ever be valid. It can, can never be real. And so with that, the lens that I learned to view everything happening in this place, on this land, completely shifted. I'm now, it made me stop being interested in having conversations about racism or like political correctness or social justice. It's like, this is, this, this battle is a battle for land and power and sovereignty. The native people of this land deserve the return of their land. They deserve to be free. Palestinians deserve the return of Palestine. 
the same way that Africans deserve the return of Africa, the same way that the people of Ireland deserve the return of Ireland. Our history is a history of domination and control and theft of land that needs to be undone. We have to answer the question of imperialism, otherwise we aren't doing anything. We're just like constantly putting band-aids on like somebody who needs like an organ transplant, right? So it made me even start to look at white people in the United States completely different. They've like diluted themselves, not I guess naturally, but as a result of like nonstop US propaganda, they have been convinced that they are some special people called Americans. <laughs> and they're not, they're Europeans. They are European, like they are just European settlers like trying out this science fair project that they're calling America, but like all science fair projects, this one is going to have to end. And the end of this is the question, what happens at the end of this? And what we want as Pan-Africanists is that the land be returned to the people that it belongs to. That is the only way to correct the wrongs of history. Otherwise we are just continuing on this path of bullshit. My political journey is not, was not neat. I don't think anybody has like a neat political journey. I went from being somebody that was like, kind of excited about the idea of having a black president. Like I thought his suits and shit was cool to somebody that was like, oh, maybe this guy like does bad things to being somebody who was like actively anti-Trump and like wanting to like fact check everything that he said and post about it on Facebook and Twitter until I realized like, oh shit, the facts don't matter here. I went from being somebody that was like convinced of like my individual potential to be like Superman and save the world to being somebody who understood that like no change occurs without organization. No change occurs without the masses of people having a politic that will guide their their actions and, and, and their movements. I like almost went down an anarchist track. I almost went down like an Afro-pessimist track. But I had all these small experiences in my life that guided me kind of to the point that I am now. But I can say that nothing has radicalized me more than actually than that moment when I stood in the mirror and realized that my history is African and my fate is with Africa. And that is like a moment that I wish for all African people everywhere across the world. When my friend died in summer 2020, I used to joke all the time and say that I've completely stopped living for the world the way it is. I only have the potential to see like the future. And that's like the only thing I can think about. And when I think about what Pan-Africanism is and what it means with that idea, the beauty of the concept of totally uniting Africa, doing away with those colonial borders and African people reclaiming our place in the world, our ability to nationalize our resources, our labor power, and, and rebuild Africa and extend those resources and that knowledge to African people all across the world and eventually be able to extend those resources and that knowledge with the rest of the world and actually contribute toward the rise of world communism. That is, the Pan-Africanism for me is like a light. It's like a way 
it's a real political objective for Black people to get behind. And there's something that it like almost makes me tear up a little bit, like thinking about all these groups of African people around the world who speak different languages, who have different cultures, who've had different lived experiences, uniting behind one political objective that guides our every move until liberation, until revolution. So that's that's what radicalized me and that's what radicalizes me every single day that I wake up. <laughs>